Please turn with me to Romans chapter 4. We want to look at actually verses 4 through 8. While you're turning there, let me just remind you that last week I said that some sermons tend to focus more on understanding or on the mind. And what we're trying to do, we're trying to do last week is, is understand Paul's argument And we're going to do a little bit more of that today, but the emphasis here really begins to shift in the direction of the heart. Uh, We're going to move in the direction of the heart, which is where belief really happens. Real belief isn't just a matter of the head, It's, it's really a matter of the heart. It's not just acknowledging or accepting certain things in your brain. But it's, it's having those things get drilled down into your heart where real belief is. Real belief is about my desires and my longings and those things that I trust, those things I entrust myself to at a practical level. And the particular point at which we begin to get to the heart this morning is at this sort of, this sort of level. Can this grace really be this good? Can this forgiveness, can this forgiveness really extend to me? Can it really be that good? That's that's where we're going to get to, I trust, today. So read with me Romans 4, beginning at verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Blessed, happy, joyous is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this passage, forgive, forgive our unbelief. Forgive even our unbelief. And overcome our unbelief and cause us to see that this really is true. It really is this big, this forgiveness, this righteousness, this declaration of innocence, this standing before you fully accepted. Help us to see that it's really that big in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As we said last week, what, what Paul is doing here is arguing that God's way of salvation hasn't changed. It's, it's always been uh, a matter of God's grace offered as a gift and received by faith. And that's a very, that's a very big pill, if you will, for particularly as Jewish readers to swallow, but also the Gentile readers, because we all construct these these sort of avenues or pathways of righteousness. We, 
we all have this, this propensity, this predilection, this inclination, this sort of native orientation to try to construct a righteousness and then we seek to satisfy it and we, we say, well, God, you know, this is who I am. This is what I do. God has to like this. God has to like this. Whether as Jew or Gentile, the Jews had the law, but Romans 2 makes clear that the Gentiles had a law as well. They, they had a natural law. They had stuff written on their hearts, written on their consciences. They had a sense of what was right and what was wrong. And Paul is basically saying, look, God has never, ever saved anyone. I know saved is a hackneyed, overworn, overworked expression, but it's a biblical word. Salvation is a biblical word. And what Paul is arguing here is that God has never saved anyone. He's never accepted anyone. He's never declared anyone innocent. He's never declared anyone righteous in his presence based upon anything they've done, based upon works, based upon adherence to the law. It has always been the case that God has offered this salvation as a gift because of his grace to be received by faith. And what he's doing in these verses in chapter 4 is calling witnesses. In Jewish law, if you were going to prove a case, you had to have witnesses, and specifically two witnesses. It's a very interesting thing. Paul is a real Jew. He understands Jewish law. And what's he doing in these verses? He's calling two witnesses. They're both dead, But they both, both of them, by the grace of God, both of them have left, if you will, a written record. And the listeners to this letter know that record. They know Abraham's story and they know David's story. And what we said last week is that Abram was declared righteous, declared innocent, not on the basis of anything he was or did. And Paul has gone to great lengths to point out the fact that Abram in Genesis 15 was declared righteous, declared innocent as he believed the promise, entrusted himself to the promise, entrusted himself to the God who made the promise. God on that basis declared him righteous, declared him innocent, declared him accepted. And he's at great pains to point out, particularly to his Jewish listeners, but to all of these folks, Jew, Gentile alike, that this happened before Abraham was the father of anybody. So he can't claim ethnicity as a basis upon which he's accepted by God. He did this before he was circumcised. That doesn't come until Genesis 17. And so he can't claim circumcision as the basis upon which he's accepted by God. And God did this before Moses was even born, hundreds of years before Moses' birth, before the Passover, before the Exodus, before Mount Sinai, before the giving of the law. God declared Abram righteous and accepted because Abram looked down the corridor of history, as Jesus says in John 8, 56, Abram rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. He embraced the promise of a deliverer, a Messiah. And on the basis of that, was received, was accepted, was declared righteous, was declared innocent. And what Paul is saying is that that's been God's method, that's been God's way the whole time, the whole time. 
And Abram is his first example. Abram is his first witness. And who is his second witness? His second witness is David. So Abram, the father of the nation, the most respected, regarded, honored, delighted, and revered person in all of the history of the nation, except for David, who was tied for first. The king, the king, David, the most highly regarded most loved, most honored, most revered person in the history of the nation except for Abram. They tied for first. They tied for first. He brings in David as the second witness. And here's what Paul is doing. He's basically saying, look, if Abram isn't enough proof for you that this is the manner of God's declaring someone innocent, accepting someone, that it isn't on the basis of what a person does, if that's not enough for you, let me have you remember David. Let me have you remember David. And there are three things that come out of this. Uh, Probably not going to get all the way through all three of them this morning, but we'll give it a shot. Three things that come out of this. The first is this, this righteousness that's being referred to, this righteousness that is referred to in this passage that is mentioned again twice. This righteousness is an alien righteousness. It's an alien righteousness. We've said this before. Paul comes back to it. He continues to unpack it. It's an alien righteousness. Second, it is a staggering righteousness. It's a staggering righteousness. And third, it's a humbling righteousness. This thing that God does is alien, staggering, and humbling. It's alien. What do we mean? Well, we mean that it is foreign to me. It's foreign to me. It isn't mine. It is something that comes to me from somewhere else. I can't claim it. I have no right to it. It is given to me. It is alien. That's what Paul means. That's what he's getting at in verses 4 and 5. And he uses the analogy, the illustration, the picture of work and wages. Work and wages. Verse 4, to the one who works, his wages are not counted to him as a gift, but as his due. Not as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts himself, trusts himself to the one who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. To the one who works, his wages are not counted to him as a gift, but as his due. So what's Paul doing? Well, he's likening acceptance with God or salvation, justification, righteousness, this declaration of innocence, this positive declaration of being righteous in the presence of God, he's likening it to a contract. A contract in which one person is paid for services rendered to another. He's likening it to that. And he's saying that that isn't it. It isn't that. Here's the analogy. I provide a service. We have a contract, we make a pact that I will provide a service for a certain amount of money. And when I perform that service, and that's the key, when I perform that service, then I earn the payment. If I satisfy the terms of the contract, then I have earned that payment and you pay me What is my due? What is my wage? It's not a gift. It is my due. 
It is what I deserve because I have performed it. I merit the payment. I merit the wage. And if you don't pay me, we have a problem. You violate the contract if you don't pay me. But if I don't perform according to the terms of the contract, you're under no obligation to pay me. I don't earn what the contract outlines that I should earn upon performance. It's precisely what Paul is arguing for here. Don't mean to be picking on anybody, but over the course of the last two months, on the front page of the paper virtually every day, we've witnessed the reality of this very arrangement. Ira Hatch contracted with people to perform a service. And apparently, repeatedly, he failed to perform that service. The result is that because of his failure to perform, he is exposed to prosecution. Because of his failure to to perform the terms, the stipulations of the contract, having been prosecuted, he has been judged. That's exactly the illustration that the apostle has used here. And it is exactly that illustration that Paul wants to apply to every single person. That's the whole point of chapter 118 through 320, that no one has performed, no one has satisfied the terms of the contract. Everyone has failed to fulfill the terms of the contract. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And in verse 19 of chapter 3, Paul says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, whether Jew or Gentile, so that every mouth may be stopped. It's a picture of a courtroom. It's a picture of a courtroom. And every person, every person who is obligated to perform the terms of the contract is brought before the judge, brought before the great high king of righteousness, the one whose knowledge is perfect, who doesn't need witnesses, who doesn't suffer from dementia, who doesn't have to have people come in to tell him what has happened. His knowledge is perfect. He knows everything that there is to know. And when the defendant is brought before this judge who is omniscient, who possesses every bit of knowledge that there is to be possessed about me, my mouth is stopped because I have no defense to offer. Guilty as charged. That's what Paul's argument has been. That's what it has been. Every mouth is stopped. And so here is the Apostle Paul arguing again, pressing this ever more deeply, saying no one will be declared righteous on the basis of his own work. I need the righteousness of another. I need an alien righteousness. I need it given as a gift. And the only way I can make it my own is to receive it by faith. I need something outside myself. And that leads to the second thing. To be declared innocent, to be declared not guilty, to be declared righteous before this God as a gift because of his grace is simply staggering. It is simply staggering. Let me just, I've said this 
uh, I, I have to say it to myself all the time. I want to remind you of it. Part of the reason that we don't find the grace of God simply staggering and overwhelming and marvelous and amazing, as John Newton did, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, is that I don't really believe that I'm a wretch. I don't really believe I'm a wretch. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. I just don't believe that I'm a wretch. And the reason I tend not to believe that I'm a wretch is because I use a horizontal standard of measure. Poor Ira Hatch. I mean, my heart breaks for him. The poor man, I say poor man, at one level, the poor man is probably going to die in prison. I look at Ira Hatch and I say, come on. I do it. You do it. We all do it. Thank God I'm not like that. Right? I do it. You do it. We do it. We use a horizontal standard of measure. Paul will have none of that. His standard of measure is not a horizontal standard of measure. It's not a comparative standard of measure. It's not Ira Hatch. It is the righteousness, pure, perfect, unsullied righteousness of an infinitely holy God. And in the presence of that God, the fact that I could be declared innocent, not guilty, be fully accepted as a gift because of his grace is simply staggering. Look at verse 5. To the one who does not work, that is to the one who does not and cannot and knows that he does not and knows that he cannot earn this righteousness, but instead trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, justifies the ungodly, declares innocent the ungodly, declares accepted the ungodly, his faith, the one who believes that and entrusts himself to the one who makes the declaration, that one is justified. And look at the word that the apostle uses. He uses the word ungodly. He uses the word ungodly. And who is in view as he says this? Who is in view as he says ungodly? It's Abraham and David. Abraham and David are the ungodly ones who are in view. Abraham and David are the ones who are brought forth as the principal witnesses of ungodliness or witnesses to ungodliness or illustrations of ungodliness. Let me encourage you to Google. Use Mr. Google. See what you can find out. Google Mesopotamian religion in the days of Abraham. Just do some research. Just when you get, to, you know, some time, just Google it. I think you'll be horrified to find out what it was that Abram was born into and what it is that he need to be, needed to be saved from. Everything was worshipped. Sun, moon, stars, sex, a god, a goddess for everything. The horrible things that Mesopotamians did to one another in the name of their religion. That's what Abram was born into. And look at Abram after he begins to walk with God. I hate this, but frankly, it's very comforting. Right? Misery loves company. Sinners. 
really should love sinners. They make them feel better about themselves. Look at what Abram does after he begins to walk with God. Twice on two separate occasions, he's willing to turn his wife over to a pagan ruler and king to save his own skin, to save his own hide. That's after he has begun to walk with God. You want a picture of ungodliness? Witness number one, Abram. But witness number two, and this should be a profound encouragement to us. Again, tragic heartbreaking and sad witness number two is David. Quoting, Paul does, from Psalm 32. Having quoted in chapter 3 from Psalm 51, the psalm that David wrote after his criminal adulterous activity. Psalm 32, summarizing David's experience of tasting the extent, the wonder of the grace of God in Jesus Christ as he is promised to David, just as he was promised to Abram. Witness number two, David. Why are we so drawn to David? Why are we so drawn to David? Great poet, great songwriter, great warrior as a young kid, courageous. Why are we so drawn to David? Because David is just like me. David is just like me. When did David write Psalms 51 and Psalm 32? He didn't write those Psalms after his heroic engagement with Goliath. He wrote them deep into his life as it became increasingly clear that he had a deep, deep, profound problem. Why does Abram call David as his second witness? I think it is profoundly pastoral, deeply pastoral. It is David call, it is Paul calling David forth as a witness so that Paul implicitly can be saying, if David can be forgiven, if David can be accepted, if David can be declared innocent and righteous, so can I. So can I. Right? You know David's story. You can read it in Samuel. David, who first commits adultery because in the first place he's not doing what he ought to have been doing. That'll preach. David, who commits adultery and then having committed adultery, engages in lies and deceits and conspiracies. David, who having committed adultery because he wasn't doing what he should have been doing as the captain of the Lord's army, as the, 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 the general should have been out there with his troops in the battlefield, stayed at home, was eating and drinking and taking his ease having committed adultery, having committed conspiracy and lying and deceiving, then conspires to have the husband of Bathsheba killed. He commits murder, adultery, conspiracy, and murder. Liberally leavened with self-deceit and lies, and cheat. 
It is David who writes, How happy are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. What lawless deeds? Look, don't, we cannot afford to whitewash this. We cannot afford to paste over this. We cannot afford to try to, you know, take this to the dry cleaners and have it sanitized. This is profoundly despicable and disgusting behavior that David engages in over an extended period of time. How blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. How blessed, how happy is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. How happy, how blessed. And this word covered It's in the text, this word covered. It conjures up all of those images of the sacrificial system, all of those sacrifices that were made and all of that blood that was shed and was sprinkled on the altar and and sprinkled on the four corners of the Ark of the Covenant. Covering, covering unrighteousness, covering sin, making atonement for sin. How blessed is the man whose sins are covered. You all know, I know, you know, we all know that all of that Old Testament sacrificial system, read Hebrews, it was imperfect, it was incomplete. The blood of bulls and goats can't cover sin, can't take away sin. How can David have such profound assurance that his sins are covered on the same basis? On the same basis that Abram could and on the same basis that you do. But you say Jesus hadn't come yet. How can David say, my sins are covered, it's removed, Christ hasn't come. He hasn't lived the life of obedience. He hasn't lived for David yet, so that he might die for David. How can David have such profound assurance? Because David looks down the corridors of history, he looks well beyond his own day and time, and he sees the blood of Christ being shed. Did he see it as clearly as you do? Did he see it as perfectly and completely as we can? Of course not. But he looked for it. He saw it. And remember verse 25 of Romans chapter 3. This is, we begin to get a more clear understanding of what Paul is saying there. Romans 3.25, whom God put forward as a propitiation in his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. What was to show God's righteousness? The cross was to show God's righteousness. The cross was to show with respect to sins that were committed before the cross that God was not sweeping those sins under the rug. He was not dismissing them. He was not whitewashing them. You remember what Romans 3 said. Whose sins are in view? Abram's sins, David's sins, the sins of all of those people who looked down the corridors of history and waited for what Simeon calls the consolation of Israel. Luke chapter 2, the consolation. What is consolation? It's peace. It's comfort. It's security. All of those people who were looking down the corridors of history. What was going on with their sins? 
Remember Romans 3, the last part of of verse 25. This was to show God's righteousness. The cross was to show God's righteousness because in his forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Remember that? God's forbearance. He restrained himself. He withheld himself. He did not exact punishment from those who had violated the terms of the contract. Those who were looking down the corridors of history, waiting for the fulfillment of the promise. What did he do? He collected their sins. He passed over them, right? Passed over them, not dismissing them, but not holding them accountable for their sins until Jesus would come. See, it isn't just Abraham and David who were looking ahead. It's not just Simeon who was looking ahead. It's not just Isaiah, Jeremiah, Deborah. Not just Ruth, Naomi who were looking ahead. But God was looking ahead. God was looking forward to the time when he would offer his son And all of those sins and all of that disobedience of Abram's, of David's, and of all of the rest, all of it collected and gathered up would be put upon Jesus and God would judge it and visit his wrath upon it in fulfillment of his promise. David was looking for that day and David could say, how blessed, how happy, How completely secure, safe, and content are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed. How blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And that has this this effect, and this is the third thing. It is profoundly, profoundly humbling. How can I stare at this cross, understanding what God has done, offering this gift of reconciliation and acceptance and righteousness and innocence? How can I look at this cross and not simply be amazed and aghast and overwhelmed and filled with wonder and humility? This is what God has done for Abram, for David, for you and for me. I said before we read the passage that this this sermon moves in the direction of the heart. This isn't just information to be stored in our heads, my dear friends. This is profound scriptural truth designed to comfort and encourage even the most desperately fearful those who are the most troubled. There are two struggles in the Christian life. There are two sides to the same coin, I believe. The deepest struggle of the Christian life is the struggle to believe. I've said this to you before. I'll say it until the day I die. The deepest struggle is not to construct a moral code and then conform to it. That is a walk in the park. That is a piece of cake, which I hope you will stay for because we're going to receive these new members at a reception following the service. You can have your cake and eat it too. 
The hardest thing about the Christian life is to believe. To believe that I am as desperately needy as the scriptures indicate that I am. And Abram and David are brought forth as witnesses to try to persuade me that my need is as deep as theirs was. Give me the opportunity. Let my heart run riot. And I will betray my best and dearest friend to save my own backside. Let my heart run riot. Withdraw all of the restraints. And I will betray my wife as David betrayed his God. In adultery, conspiracy, self-deceit, lying, and even murder to cover myself. The first struggle of the Christian life is to believe that my need is that deep. The second side to this coin of belief is the struggle to believe that the righteousness of Jesus is big enough for me. The struggle to believe that the death of Jesus upon the cross, his shed blood covers all of my sin. If it is big enough for David, my friend, it is big enough for you. That to me, is the most difficult struggle of the Christian life, to believe those two things. But let me tell you where joy is. It is where David began to find it. Blessed, blessed is the one who not pasting over the depth of his need, not whitewashing the depth of his need, not pretending about the depth of his need. How blessed is the one who faces the reality of his lawlessness, who faces the reality of his sin, and who can say, because of the death of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, that lawlessness, those sins, will never be counted against me, ever because they were counted against Jesus so that I might be free. How blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Let's pray together. Lord.